May that be our prayer, that the church would arise, that we would love, we'd be your hands, we'd be your eyes. God, I pray that you'd speak to us here today. We've engaged with you. We've remembered the price that was paid for us to secure our salvation. But Lord, it wasn't given to us for us to hold. It was given for us to share. You've entrusted the message of freedom and truth to us. And so much of our life gets in the way of this, God. Awaken us for your glory, I pray. In your precious name, amen. Amen. I release the children through grade four. It's been good to have you with us. We intentionally keep the children here with us during the communion time so that parents can help them understand and learn exactly what that's all about. We're in James chapter one and two today. So a lot of text to cover, but God is good and God is faithful. We've started this year thinking about how our stories can declare the glory of God. And today we're looking at um, the story of a genuine believer. What is the story of a genuine believer? And I think uh, James is is a wonderful place for us to look. James 2.26 says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. And James has caused some confusion over the years as far as what is it works? Is it salvation? For salvation, is it works? Is it faith? The scripture makes it clear that it's by, by grace we've been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. So it's our faith that saves us. And James, if he were here with us today, I'm sure would agree with that. But what he does say is that your faith must be genuine. And a genuine faith is a faith that changes your life. A faith that's genuine is a faith that shows itself and demonstrates itself in what the song we just sang said, it's love displayed to the world. And James unpacks that for us here in these couple of verses that we're going to be looking at today, several verses, actually many verses, but as we look at this and consider what does this mean for us, our big idea for today is that the actions of a genuine believer reveal a, a living faith, <laughs> the actions. And again, it's not that we do things to win the favor of God, rather that it's because we understand the favor of God We do things in response to that. Jesus in John 14 says, he who has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. See, if we enter into this love relationship with Jesus that's unavoidable for those of us who understand the work of the cross, our lives change. Because God comes and takes his dwelling within us in the person of his Holy Spirit. And we're new creations. The old is gone and the new has come. So that's what we're talking about here. And James in verse 18 of chapter 1 says that he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits. So it's the word of truth that births this new life in us. 
that helps us to understand what it means to be genuine believers. The first point that we see is that the genuine believer looks deeply into the Word and implements what he or she has learned. So the verse that we see, 26, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in all he does. So the first idea here that, that, that a genuine believer looks deeply into the Word and implements it. Now, I don't know about you, but I think implementation is where we begin to have trouble. We understand and know that, that James is this amazing letter. It's written by the brother of Jesus and probably the earliest letter in the New Testament and, and really written to these Jewish believers. And so they're, they're coming with a, a great understanding of the Old Testament and the righteousness that's, that's required by God from that. And and so James is speaking to them in a powerful way. So we understand that this text is written to a group of people at a point in time for a specific purpose. And as we study the word, we can understand and know the principles that God is teaching us. And as we understand and know those principles, we can then apply them to our lives. But then moving beyond application comes implementation, where we implement the things that we learn. And that's where the struggle begins. I have a treadmill at home. Yeah. Now I understand the principle of the treadmill. And I understand the principle of, of health. And I, my doctor has told me that it would be really good if I were to use this treadmill. And so I, I understand. And, and, and I, I have applied that truth to my life. I absolutely believe that the best thing for me to do is to walk on that treadmill as far as it relates to my implementation has been a struggle. <laughs> so I decided to make it a clothes dryer. I hang my clothes on it. Now I'm implementing it, fine. <laughs> How many times is it like that for us in Scripture? We, we catch the principle we own the application, but implementing it becomes a strain and a stretch. I loved last week when Manny said that Scripture is delicious. Don't you love that? See, so, so the Word is this wonderful, wonderful truth that we can have, and, and, and it tells us that it's by the truth of the Word of God that we're reborn that we have this new birth that comes to us. And it's through that that we have this genuine faith that comes into our lives and we can become genuine believers. And once that happens, because of the presence of God in our lives, our lives change. And he starts by saying, we need to be dear brothers, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring the righteous life that God desires. So again, this isn't a book, and sometimes we get into James and we can think of it as this book of do's and don'ts, these, these things we need to be doing. As a matter of fact, we can look at all of Scripture that way, but that's not it. It's this, it's this book that's written for us, given to us, preserved for us to see 
How are we doing according to that which God's designed for us? Because to be within the way that God's designed for us is to live the abundant life that he's designed for us. And so we see if we've, if we've not come to a place where we're quick to listen and slow to speak, if we're quick to get angry, we say, well, we're not taking hold of that righteous life that God's designed for us. Yeah. I remember I used to be a very angry man, fits of rage, and ooh, it was ugly. But God changed me, turned that anger into passion for him. How many times when you're in a conversation with someone, instead of hearing them out and hearing everything they have to say, you're already working on what you're going to say in response to what they're saying, so you're really not listening to them. And so if we're not listening to each other, you know the old adage, you've been given two ears and one mouth, so you should listen twice as much as you speak. But again, that flows from the love of Christ flowing through you into a world that desperately needs this. And then he says, get rid of all moral filth and the evil so prevalent and humbly except the word of God planted in you. Moral filth, get rid of that. Isn't it encouraging to know that 2,000 years ago they were dealing with moral filth as well? I don't know if that's all that encouraging or not. But the idea here that James talks about, he says, put it off. It's kind of the idea of taking off your clothes. Right? And so you think about you know, that one day a week when it's over 90 in Wisconsin, you know, or one day a year, I should say, um, and it's, it's hot and you've been outside and you're working and you're just like, ugh, your clothes are filthy. You were doing some dirty project and you get these filthy clothes and they smell and you come into your house and your wife says, man, you should wear those all week. No, it's like, get those things off. It's, it's filthy, you know, and you need to get that off and you need to get it cleaned. That's the same thing that James is encouraging his, his audience here. That moral filth, it stinks. It, it stinks on you. And, it, and it, it's filth. And as I've been looking at this text this week and stop to think about where is the moral filth that's on me? And to see the places that I've allowed that to happen because John Wesley quote that's there in your bulletin. What's tolerated by one generation will be embraced by the next. And we stop and think about what are the things that were tolerated in the previous generation. We think of gone with the wind and all the conversation about whether or not that one word could be placed in the last line of the movie. And of course it was tolerated. And now look what's embraced. And that's just one example of many and we look at how culture and society continue. And listen, it impacts the church. It impacts the family of God. So how do we get off? Take that off. And then don't merely listen to the word. Do what it says. Implement it. The next things we see here at the end of the chapter. Verse 26, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself. And his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There's this idea here. It's, it's powerful. We don't see the word religion used very much in Scripture. But what James makes clear to the group of people he's writing to is there is a pure religion. 
And a pure religion has the heart of God behind it. And the heart of God is this. It, it guards the tongue. It controls the tongue. So if, if we have a pure religion, if we have a genuine relationship with Christ, our tongue will be different. And then the next thing we see is it has a concern for the helpless. There's this help for widows and orphans. And it's the heart of God. As you read through the Old Testament, as you read through the, the Pentateuch, the first five books, and you read through there, you see God's heart for the widows and the orphans. Psalm 68, verse 5 says, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. It's his heart. And how many of you, you've lost your father, and that verse really impacts your life? A father to the fatherless. The next verse in, in NIV, it says this, God sets the lonely in families. And I think that's so huge because there we see the heart of God. God, each one of us, to as many as received him, to as many as believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God, children not of natural descent, children of God. As children of God, we're brothers and sisters. We're part of the family. And God puts the lonely into this family of God. So how many... How many of you here are, are in a place where you're feeling lonely? There's a, a heartache in your life. There's a, a relationship that's been severed. There's something's going on and you feel lonely. God has designed for us, the church, the family of God, to come in and give a place for that, to share who he is so that people aren't lonely. They're part of a family. And that's what the church is next thing we see is that we keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. Pure religion does that. An illustration I've, I've used in the past, Tony Evans <laughs> originated this. I, can't, I could say it like Tony Evans, but it wouldn't come out right. But the idea that many of us, you know, we love to go to the buffet. And we walk down the buffet line, you know, OCB, Golden Corral, something. And we line up the plates, we get the tray, and, and we get the plate, the mashed potatoes, the beef, the gravy, everything loaded up on there. And, you know, and then get to the dessert table, right? Because you got to get that. You get that all put on there. And then you grab a Diet Coke, <laughs> right? And you're like, somehow that's going to offset it, all right? Like Pizza Ranch with a Sprite Free, you know? All right, so you see... That's what it's like for some of us. This might be the only church that you have. This, you don't have any other focus on God during the week. This is it. And, and this is maybe twice a month. And, and maybe this is all you get. See, that's a Diet Coke. Then you go out the rest of the week, 167 hours, and you're polluted by the world. That's all the food off the buffet. You've got to turn that around. You gotta let you gotta let your time because it's delicious. And this is your food. And and this becomes what we eat, and then the Diet Coke becomes the stuff we're polluted with by the world. So how are we doing with that? The second thing we see a genuine believer loves mercy, and mercy guides his or her attitudes and actions. Mercy. Love mercy. 
And he starts out in this chapter and says, don't show favoritism. As he starts there, I think the first verse in chapter 2 gives us an indication of why this is such a problem. He says this, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. The adjective for the Lord there, glorious. See, who's glorious? The Lord is glorious. And when we start showing favoritism, what we're doing is we're giving people glory above the other. We're discriminating, you know? And, And see, when we understand the glorious Lord, for God so loved the world, every person. He loved the world so much he gave his only son he is, demonstrates his own love for us in this. See, the glory goes to God. And when we start showing favoritism, we, we start giving people glory. Listen, there's no place for that. There's no place for that. Don't, don't get tethered to me. You get tethered to Jesus. He's the glorious one. Don't tether yourself to people. And he talks here, he says, favoritism, discrimination, prejudice. I was reading a story about a man who sat in the mall waiting for his wife to shop. Anybody ever done that? And so he was was sitting in the mall waiting for his wife while she was shopping. And he started looking at people. And he realized that as he was watching people, he was judging them. Based on how they were dressed, how they acted, kind of piercings they had, who they were with, what they had bought. And as he sat there, he realized he was judging them. He wasn't loving them. He wasn't thinking of how could he love them for who they were. He was thinking of which ones were icky and which ones weren't. You ever do that? You ever see somebody and you're thinking, that's a little icky. And immediately that person goes here because somebody else is up here. And see, we can show favoritism that way. And James tells us there's no room for that because our glorious Lord loved the world. The verse that this section closes out with says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's huge. Mercy is not giving somebody what they deserve. And our Lord is merciful. He has not given us what we deserve. Amen? And he is expecting and, and calling us to be mercy for him in the world. And that's what this whole deal is with a genuine believer. A genuine believer has been changed by Jesus Christ. And he indwells them and they become Jesus in the world. And so mercy begins to flow out of us. And there's some practical ways that that can happen in our lives. One of the things I've really been wrestling with the last couple of weeks is a new awareness and understanding of a sinful action in me. Do you know, Scripture tells us that Satan somehow is before the Lord accusing us day and night. Revelation tells us that. Now we understand and know Satan's an an angel who was with God in heaven and was thrown out of heaven. He doesn't dwell there anymore, but in some way, God gives him access. We see that in Job. And with that access, he uses his access to accuse the brethren before the Lord. And, 
And so Satan is there accusing us. But, amen, Scripture tells us that the Lord Jesus is there interceding for us. And the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. So we have these accusations and this intercession happening. Praise God. Who is he who condemns, Roman 8 says. Nobody. Because Jesus is there interceding for us. But as I've thought about it, and what I've noticed in my life, is how many times when something happens to me, do I step into accusation instead of intercession? Okay, so, so somebody does something that rubs me the wrong way. Has that ever happened to anybody? Right? And, and then the next thing you know, I'm like, uh, Karen says, how was your day? Like, can you believe this person? Okay? And I can easily step into accusation. Like, who's the accuser? Satan. If I step into accusation, what am I doing? I'm on, I'm on what? No. So I've been working really hard in my life and in my heart saying, Lord, Lord, show me the times that I do that. I want to intercede because, listen, how many of you are trying to live a really terrible Christian life? I'm not. I want to be Jesus. I, I want people to see Jesus when they see me. But you know what? I need your prayers for that. And you need my prayers for that. See, that's part of the family piece here is that we're praying for each other. Because listen, I don't need you to accuse me. I need you to intercede for me. And sometimes that means interceding with me. And intercede means plead. Plead for that person. I absolutely believe with all my heart that each one of you is trying desperately to live the Christian life the best way you can. And if I can come before the throne of God with Jesus and plead for you, oh my goodness. So when someone comes up to you and says, can you believe what so-and-so does? You say, let's pray right now. Let's plead for them. Let's, let's bring them before the throne from Jesus' point of view. Because we don't work for the other guy. Man, maybe I'm the only one struggling with that right now. But I want to challenge you. Look at yourself during the week. Find out if you're an accuser or an intercessor. And leave it. Where are we? Number three. A genuine believer has a dynamic faith. A dynamic faith. And, and it says faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. You have faith, but does faith have you? Right? It's this idea that, that here's this test, if you will, that, that James puts out for us. And I love what, what Warren Wearsby has in his commentary. So I just copied it and gave him credit. And now we can use it. Amen. And I don't think he'd even mind. Um, but here we go. Three types of faith we can think about. A dead faith, a demonic faith, and a dynamic faith. And understanding that only one of those is a saving faith. James says, can such faith save him? And the implication is no, it can't. So do you have a dead faith? And I had this for many years. I knew what the Bible said. I had it in my head. 
I understood. Jesus died on the cross. Okay, I get that. Died for sins. Makes perfect sense. Rose again. Okay, I'll buy it. Yeah, I have all here. But that's not a living faith. James tells us that's a dead faith. Faith without works is dead. And see, Ephesians 2 says, you hath he quickened who are dead in your trespasses and sins. So if I'm still there, I'm still dead. The next faith is this demonic faith. And we understand that demons are, are those who are thrown out of heaven with Satan. They're fallen angels. And they, they, they have a, a faith that includes the mind and emotions. It says they shudder. Demons have been in the presence of God. They know there's a God. They know God's real. They know Jesus hung on the cross. They know he raised from the dead. And it scares them. They shudder. Their emotions are involved in this. And some of you have come to a place where maybe you got it in your head and you're a little touched by it. You know, if the right song plays, you'll raise your hand or, or get a tear in your eye or something's happening. But again, it's not a living faith. The final faith is this dynamic faith that reveals itself in actions. It shows that you've genuinely been rescued from sin by God. Amen. And it's this powerful faith that changes your life. And and you're different. You can't even help yourself. You see somebody in the store who needs help carrying something and you push them out of the way so you can help them. You, you, you just can't help yourself. See, you, you don't get angry anymore. You forgive people even before they ask. You show mercy to people. You can't help yourself because Jesus just pouring out of you. And you give yourself to him. You give yourself to the word that was planted in you. Martin Luther says this, faith is a, design, a divine work in us. It changes us. Makes us to be born anew of God. Oh, it's a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It's impossible for it to not do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question rises, it's already done them. And it's always at the doing of them. It is impossible to separate works from faith, quite as impossible as to separate burning and shining from fire. So where are you? Where are you? Do you have a genuine faith? Is it, is it a genuine faith that has changed you? Are you... Are you eating at the buffet line of the world and drinking the Diet Coke of Jesus? Or listen, are you giving over to him? Because genuine faith that changes you from the inside out, you can't control it. And the world desperately needs to know us by our love. So, a challenge. Test yourself. See where you are. And if you've got that dynamic faith, live it out. Let your work show it. Worship team is coming up. We're going to sing a, a last song here. Lord, thank you.
Thank you. I praise you for this day. I thank you for this word of truth. Help us to search ourselves, Lord. I want to be known as one who loves Jesus. I want for each one of us who know you to be known as someone who loves Jesus. I want us to be like Darren, who's so bold with his faith that he's texting his friends and telling them about Jesus so that you can add to our number daily those who are being saved, not so that we've got a big church, so that hell isn't crowded. We pray this in your name.